Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Paul. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. We've all experienced the frustration of working in clinical environments that just don't seem to be set up intuitively. But what if there were ways to improve the design of the places and the processes in which clinicians practice? In this episode, we spoke with Dr. Andrew Petrosoniak and Dr. Chris Hicks, both eMERGE docs at St. Mike's Hospital in downtown Toronto. They have done extensive work on human-centered design in healthcare and have done amazing work redesigning the St. Mike's Trauma Bay and many other areas in the St. Mike's Emergency Department. Check out the links in the show notes to see the pictures of their newly redesigned trauma bay, and also check out their website, advancedperformance.ca. I was wondering if you could tell some of our listeners who may not know you as well as we do, where you each grew up and what your training pathway was to where you are. And maybe we'll start with you, Andrew. Uh, okay, great. Yeah, I am uh, work at St. Mike's. Uh, I'm an eMERGE doc and a, and a trauma doc at St. Mike's Hospital, and I've been there for about seven years now. Uh, and I grew up in Ontario, small town, uh, Lindsay, and uh, made my way through uh, to med school in Ottawa and then uh, residency in Toronto and have uh, since settled down here. So I uh, spend most of my time doing thinking about trauma and now more recently thinking about um, design and using simulation for uh, simulation form design. And uh, Chris and I recently uh, started a company that does some of this work as well. Um, and so we sort of toggle between the academic space and the, and the um, uh, I guess, industrial space uh, using simulation to, to help make better decisions and and uh, inform uh, design of clinical spaces and, and outside of healthcare, we do some work and stuff. So it's, yeah, it's really been a, a pretty interesting um, past few years. I was born and raised in Toronto, went to med school in Kingston, did my FR residency with um, subspecialty work in trauma uh, back in Toronto. Again, I've been at St. Mike's for about 12 years now. You know, I guess how we got interested in this space, well, I can speak for myself, I always had advice early on in my career to take something that really annoys you and make it your sort of passion project. And, you know, it's my, it's been my observation for a long time that when things uh, are difficult in a resuscitation or in clinical care, it's rarely because people don't know what they're doing from a medical or surgical or procedural side of things. It's because the logistics and the team dynamics and the so-called so human factors of the, of the situation kind of encumber us. And I've come kind of all the way through from the sort of personal and team preparation side of things to coming all around now to looking at the sort of systems and ergonomics and design factors that influence performance. Uh, and I, I think it really started uh, through our work in simulation, trying to optimize our own resuscitation environment, particularly in trauma, but also in our new emergency department. I say new, it'll be new one day. Um, by the time it's done, it'll be ready to be renovated again. But um, it was kind of working there and then realizing that there was a real appetite uh, elsewhere for people to, to sort of look at and examine the, the work that we were doing uh, and recognizing that we had, we developed 
kind of a niche little area of simulation in optimizing um, clinical environments. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about what that looks like, but it basically arose from sort of an itch that we both felt we really needed to scratch around um, how annoying uh, suboptimal work environments can actually be uh, regarding clinical care, regarding uh, job and life satisfaction and um, regarding patients. If I think back to 2009, when they were building uh, the new tower at uh, the Foothills Medical Center, and we put in a hybrid operating suite dedicated just for trauma, which we uh, you know, came up with the acronym of the Raptor. Um, Andy Kirkpatrick and I, and I'm sure you're aware of, I've published a fair bit about you know that that human-centered design piece that that went along with it. And to be honest, before that sort of situation or, or that development, we were certainly very ignorant to that entire field. We we're no doubt blind to it and the the benefit and the the interest that comes with it. I'm curious if, if one of you could define for our audience, uh, maybe who is not savvy with this uh, conceptual work, um, what is human-centered design and and uh, and where do you go from initially identifying that it may be helpful to you or your group? I mean, human-centered design is, is basically uh, an approach that uh, you use for systems development, uh, process development, space development, uh, where the focus really starts with the end user uh, and it's their needs and requirements and input that you, uh, it kind of drives the design. So traditionally, uh, interestingly enough, you know, oftentimes it's not so human-centered. Design comes from non-users uh, often. Um, now you'll see good designs often are linked closely with how a user experiences uh, whatever the product is or whatever the space or, uh, or, or, or um, system is. But uh, it's not uncommon for, for instance, if you think in healthcare, an architect who never uh, either is a patient or is a clinician uh, it will be responsible for the design of a space. And traditionally, that's what's happened. And, and so this notion of putting the human the patient, the clinical team at the core, at the center of the design process to first understand them, understand what it is that their needs are. And sometimes they don't even understand their needs. And we'll talk probably about ways that that can kind of play out. But uh, and then as a result, designing as such. And we can look to tech uh, as, as a pretty good example for, for you know, human-centered design. Uh, if you look at, you know, most people's uh, iPhone or or, uh, or Android devices, you know, are so intuitive that they've clearly put the, the user at the center of it. I mean, my four-year-old is completely uh, uh, solid with using the iPad, and she needed no instruction to to do so. So it, it's it, there's no there's no uh, you don't have to read a manual to get to that spot, and it's amazing that um, despite the fact that the iPad is a highly complex. Uh, product, it requires really no instruction or, you know, a little bit of trial and error, and that's about it. And so you can see quite early uh, that that with well-designed products, that if you put the human, if you put the user, if you put the, the in, in healthcare, the clinical team or the patient at the center of it, then you really end up with some quite valuable uh, outputs. Sticking with the uh, the tech example, you know, on the on the healthcare side, you don't have to look any further than almost every CPOE system um, to appreciate uh, the 
impact of not focusing on the user when you design something. And I think Andrew and I Andrew would probably agree with this sentiment that things get designed for us with a need in mind. You know, your CPOE system needs to track patients. It needs to record clinical information. It needs to output clinical data. Um, and so designers go, okay, well, let's, let's create something that fits those needs. Here's your patient list and here's how you record. And this is where you get information, but it's the how, like how you access that information, how it's used, how it's translated, uh, that's missing. And clinical space is the same way. We need to put 36 patients in this emergency department. We need uh, a bunch of stretchers to put them on. We need to, to sort of have resuscitation equipment available. You know, the analogous, the analogy to CPOE in our emergency department is not as much true. I don't think in the surgical environment in the operating room, uh, we would observe, I think that our, our clinical logistics are set up to facilitate stocking. We need to get stuff into the department and we need to understand and track stocking, um, so that the, the department has stuff in it. What is missing from that process is how that stuff gets used by the end user. And that's sort of the user centered design, um, side of things, uh, just having a bunch of stuff kicking around is not good enough. If you don't also integrate how that equipment is used, where it's most likely to be used, um, what pieces of equipment are likely to be used, uh, in concert with one another, how you get it to the bedside, um, how you use it safely, how you dispose it, how you restock it, all of those things are missing. And it, it doesn't take a lot to just sort of ask uh, a provider what it is they need. The problem is most people don't ask. And we've gone so far in healthcare with just getting used to that predicament that I don't even think we notice it anymore. And one of the interesting things about simulation is it just shines a light on that. You just start looking at a problem that is there every single day of your life, but you don't pay attention to it. Um, this sort of simulation form design process that Andrew and I use uh, kind of shines a light on that sense of learned helplessness that I think we've all become accustomed to. And as surgeons, this is not probably not as familiar to you, but you can imagine just you know your your operative equipment just kind of being everywhere, and you have to go get what you need ad hoc. Um, that obviously would have a fairly significant impact on your efficacy in the OR, um, and that's uh, that's an issue that we're, we're we're trying to solve in a variety of clinical environments, uh, both in and outside of the operating uh, environment. Yeah, I love I love that Andrew what you said about uh, your your four year old being able to use the iPad, right? You know. Uh, I, I saw a tweet the other day that was like, you know, a new developmental milestone should be for children that whether they can use the iPad by the age of two, right? So like, it's so simple to be able to use. I was hoping, you know, both of you talked about the fact that you noticed and had this daily irritation with how poor the design can be in the emergency department. Um, and, and like you just said, um, Dr. Hicks, that that we often don't even notice how poorly designed our spaces really are. Uh, maybe starting with you, Andrew, could you just talk about an example of poor design in the emergency department? Oh man, where do I begin? So, I mean, I think what, you know, these are, this would be, I think, common through any resuscitation space. Uh, and Chris and I have described this and we, we, the, the location, you know, we can start with the location of vital sign monitors, the, 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 rationale for them being at the head of the bed in all spaces, in all places of the world, always is, is just a remarkable, uh, I, I don't know, accomplishment, I guess, in the most <laughs> uh, broad terms, but, but is unbelievably ineffective, meaning you're blinding your airway providers, essentially, from the most vital monitors you have. Now that might be okay in the OR where you have a silent environment uh, at the time of induction when you can use, you can leverage sort of your auditory sense 
and and use the sound of desaturations. But like in any busy ICU, uh, emergency department, trauma bay, the idea that we would only have one monitor with it is literally called a vital sign. I mean, so so clearly it seems important um, that we would blind you know some of the team from the, the, that information that would inform a, a change or a pivot in process um, is is remarkable. So. You know, the, these are just one of the few things. I mean, Chris also mentioned uh, the sort of how the equipment layouts are structured for stocking. Um, that that's I think common. That's not just in in the ED. I think that's kind of throughout healthcare. And uh, Chris could probably weigh in on this because he's certainly more you know has advocated more of this than I have. But the the idea of how we communicate with overhead pages as a strategy to I don't even know what, I don't know what the strategy is, but overhead pages being a way of communicating information that, that really um, in certain instances, like a code white or a code blue or something is effective, but to tell uh, you know team that a stretcher needs to be moved or cleaned um, is remarkable that we would be polluting the, and adding to distractions uh, from, from people that are already cognitively overloaded. So, uh, I don't know, Chris. What do you think? Those, those are a few I think that I've kind of came up with. Yeah, the example that I would use, um, uh, I think, with the, the notion of sort of putting cart before horse again, I really at, um, to the design of our emergency department, where there was this, I think, really good concept um, that guided the design of our acute area, where we'd see sort of our sicker patients, uh, which was rather than having a single resuscitation space, uh, every room was meant to be used uh, for patient resuscitation, and that's. If you think about it conceptually, that makes a lot of sense. If you, you know, presumably you could put a sick patient anywhere and in concept looked after them equally well in any of the 36 beds. Problem was the logistics to support that were, were just not there, right? So although you had a bunch of rooms that were, that physically resembled one another, the logistics of getting resuscitation equipment to the bedside were just completely absent. And uh, this is a big emergency department, um, a big area with 36 beds, a long hallway, a lot of geography uh, between the three zones of, of the area. The idea that you would be looking after a patient in sort of one zone and have to cross three zones to the other side of the department to grab your central line kit and then come back. And then uh, having grabbed your central line kit, get all of the related accoutrement that you would need to put in a central line and then go and find your ultrasound and then go and find your sterile ultrasound equipment. Um, you, you, uh, the patients up at the ICU are dead by the time you get it all together. So, uh, you know, again, a concept which is resuscitate everywhere is a great concept. The problem is, uh, and the step that was missing was, uh, well, why don't we ask the users what they would need to be able to resuscitate in any one of those spaces? Uh, and the solution we came up with was a mobile resuscitation tower um, that was you know, duplicated in all three zones, which is meant to support the clinical logistics of resuscitation for the first 40, 45 minutes of anything. Um, and that's sort of extraneous to the, to the crash cart. This was more set up for things like central lines and IV starts and rare procedures like pericardiocentesis. And suddenly you did have a solution that allowed you to resuscitate everywhere, but we kind of had to reverse engineer that going from a concept that sounded great, uh, but just didn't work. I guess the other thing I would add uh, on sort of poor design, like our, our entire waiting process in healthcare, and I don't mean just in the emergency department, but everywhere that that is completely, is really focused on the clinician. And, and, I, and I, I don't think many places do waiting very well. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're certainly not a patient-centered approach. Uh, the idea that you wait without knowing 
and spending most of your time not knowing what's happening. I mean, is like one of, if you ask anybody that studies waiting experience, like if you um, dig into any industry that that actually cares about the user experience, they very much keep people occupied. They keep people moving. They they're uh, transparent with weights. I mean, this is like the antithesis of healthcare. So. I think that's probably one of the other things that is kind of broadly applicable. I mean, certainly in the ED in many places, but but I think throughout healthcare, outpatient clinics, all of that. You know, I I love your guys' examples uh, a lot, and I certainly see what you what you mean with with each of them. I want to push back a little bit though, with you know, against the notion that the emergency department is similar to other areas within a hospital. You know, having worked and trained for a long time in the U.S. At trauma centers, for example, if we surround the, the trauma side of things with volumes 10 to 15 fold higher than the busiest Canadian trauma center, it's interesting to compare and contrast those to most of the trauma centers across the country that I've you know, personally been in. And by that, really what I mean is that if you compare the noise level, the patient flow, um, the number of bodies, um, the general chaos, I would argue, in many emergency departments um, in Canada, it's fundamentally different from the busier spaces in the U.S. And, I, you know, there's a lot of postulates as to why that is. Um, to be honest, most of the high-volume trauma centers, there is no emergency medicine involved at all. If you start in Cape Town and you work your way back to North America, you tend to come in the door. And if you're injury, you go sort of one way. And if you're anything else, you go the other way. And what's amazing in these centers is you can have six, eight, 12, you know, gunshots sitting in your trauma bay. And the environment is quiet. There's many, many, many less people. And the, the flow of care and the quality of care, I would argue, is significantly higher. And when I think about, you know, the environment that I work in, for example, and how we address similar scenarios with regard to critical illness or intensity of illness, again, there's a fundamentally different approach in the emergency department compared to the critical care suite, compared to the interventional radiology suite, and compared to the operative suite. And a lot of those same comments, you know, do apply in comparison. It's you know, as a result, you know, really been a challenge for us, certainly locally, and I know in a number of trauma centers across the country to try and solve some of those those issues. And we certainly have not approached it with a, you know, more novel human-centered design as, as you guys are talking about. I'm curious what, what your thoughts on, on those comments are and maybe the differences between the emergency department and these other uh, areas, as well as your insight into how you start this process in a constructive way, in a multidisciplinary way uh, across different centers. Well, I think we would agree with you on the notion that, um, you know, every area of the hospital is different. And um, fundamentally, I think that's part of what simulation form design can help with. Uh, it's not, you know, solving your sort of clinical logistics issue, you know, in the ICU is going to look different than the emergency department, depending on what the nature of the problem is. And I think and Andrew, and I, Andrew and I would be the first to say, you have to spend some time figuring out what the actual issue is before you go trying to solve it. And we're awfully good in healthcare at trying to solve problems that we don't really understand just yet. So totally agree. I think you're going to get a different look at the nature of an issue in the ICU versus the trauma room versus the emergency department. 
Um, and if we, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into this, this notion of sort of importing concepts from design thinking into clinical logistics, the first stage in that whole process is sort of empathizing and understanding and getting a sense of what the nature of the problem is before you actually start to create solutions. Uh, whereas generally speaking, I think in healthcare, we get that backwards. We start trying to solve problems that we don't really understand. So total agreement there. Um, I think when we talk about um, sort of solving issues like crowding and noise, I, I completely agree. I, I don't understand why our, um, our trauma rooms function in this sort of noisy, chaotic, sort of haphazard way. Uh, when in reality, what happens there is compared, compared to the rest of the emergency department, comparatively um, predictable and systematic and organized. You know you're getting an injury. Um, you just don't always know what kind. And there's a relatively sort of reproducible process that needs to take place for every patient every time uh, with a team that, um, apart from the individuals, uh, is relatively, uh, has the same uh, composition most of the time. So why it descends into chaos so often is a little bit uh, beyond me, except to say, I don't know that it is because we've, we've spent a little bit of time trying to figure out what, what, what the issues are and, and how to solve them. And so I think the first thing uh, Andrew and I would advocate for uh, and, you know, speaking in particular, we'll leave maybe the team training and team dynamic side um, to the side for, for the moment. Uh, but we do believe that there are ways in which you can engineer your space to make, uh, to allow you to get more out of your team uh, that you want and less of what you don't want. So, for example, if you look at the work in our trauma bay, we've created uh, behavioral nudges to help create social and team norms that allow us to reinforce the sort of behavior that we want. So there's a circle of care uh, around the patient's head and torso, and that's meant in trauma in particular to protect the very valuable real estate around the head, neck, and torso. Um, and people don't necessarily respect the circle on the floor, but what it does establish is if you're you know, not rendering clinical care and you're inside that circle, people are empowered to say, hey, step outside of the circle because um, we need access to get IVs. And I, one of the big issues that I think you've probably seen as well is, is sort of nurses and um, trauma team members kind of jockeying for space, you know, doing a point of care ultrasound in a stable patient when it's not really relevant uh, when what you should be really doing is you know, IV access and blood work. And so that allows, you know, for example, our nurses to say, hey, can you please don't sign the circle of care? because you're not directly involved with, with hands-on patient care. And it's the same for uh, floor markings we placed on the ground that help to create some uh, social norms around where you stand, where you don't stand, um, crowd control. We've created a viewing room adjacent to our trauma base so that when things start to get noisy and people are just standing around watching the so-called you know redundant tissue of, of trauma team hangers on, uh, we can kick them out and have them go across the hall to watch. Um, so all of this in service of creating some some systemic interventions and, and nudges to push us more towards the sort of behavior that we want. Um, you know, it's one thing to just sort of walk into the trauma and say, everyone be quiet. Um, but um, it's another thing to say, okay, this is what we're, this is how we're going to sort of shape and mold team behavior to get a bit more out of what we want from the team and a bit less of what we don't want. I guess uh, the other thing on that note is that um, if you design the space more effectively and more efficiently and more intuitively, then you can start to eliminate other distractions and, and sort of streamline cognitive load. Like we can start to eliminate noise when we don't have people yelling, uh, can you get me something? So if it just, if it one, if it's easier for somebody to find, then you've suddenly eliminated um, a need for communication in that, in that point. Uh, you can obviously, I mean, there's some team training stuff where you can um, task delegate. So you're talking about the design of a, and construction of a team. But 
I think we forget how much communication is required to overcome the deficiencies in the design of a physical space. Um, because people are asking for things, they can't find things, it creates a sense of urgency, it increases noise volume, it increases stress, it impairs decision making, all of these types of things when if we simply had most equipment readily available, we didn't, we weren't putting equipment on patients' chests as the table, uh, we weren't losing stuff, we couldn't find things, you know, th then, then we suddenly are in a whole better headspace. Uh, it's, you know, it's like when you lose your car keys and they're right in front of you, but you're frantically trying to get out to some appointment and, and you just can't see them. And then the same thing happens when you're stressed out in a, in a, in a whether it be a trauma or, you know, an OR or an emergency department, you can't find things. It's, it's quite stressful. And then, and then, you, you know, it just compounds and it's a, and it's a vicious cycle. done a lot of work to actually study what the challenges are, what the problems are, because I think we all have this idea that we know what the challenges are, what the problems are, but uh, unless we actually sit down and actually look at it, I don't think that we, all, we actually really know what, what's, what is actually happening in our emergency departments. So when you're thinking about a design type problem and you're, you're trying to understand that, what goes into actually di dissecting the problem, if I can use that term, and actually understanding the problem? How do you actually go about studying design uh, in a healthcare setting. And, and maybe Chris, uh, you could start us off. Yeah, I mean, it's a good segue into sort of the design thinking philosophy. Um, uh, again, I don't, you say, you say we understand the problem. I don't know if we do. I think we understand that there's, uh, most of us, if, if something isn't working right, we know that it isn't working right, but we don't always know um, what about it isn't working. And I think that's the challenge. And that's the part we don't um, tend to examine. We, we say, okay, um, you know, it takes too long to get blood to the bedside during uh, massive resuscitation. All right, let's jump forward to the solution. We're going to educate everybody and send reminder emails on what the MTP or the MHP process is supposed to look like. There's our solution. We'll remind people and remind them again, remind them again, and it's still not going to work. Um, the sort of taking a design thinking approach, and obviously we didn't create this, um, but using it in the healthcare space is, is relatively novel. But this notion that you would spend a little bit of time, I know it sounds crazy, we spend a little bit of time trying to figure out what the nature of the problem is that sort of empathize um, and, uh, and, and understand first and get input from multiple uh, perspectives for a given problem. So not just speaking to um, leaders and administrators, but um, uh, frontline providers, doctors, nurses, CAs, uh, um, uh, what we call USWs in our environment, um, porters, everyone, talk to everyone and get a sense of, of what they're doing and better than talk to them, use simulation to really understand and observe the work that they do, not just work as imagined, but work as done. Um, make those observations, discuss, debrief, analyze, uh, now you have a pretty good sense of what the issues actually uh, are. And using that MHP example, and this is this is Andrew's work, uh, working on optimizing massive hemorrhage protocol, um, you find out peculiar things like, uh, you know, the, the porter who's supposed to go get the blood, we don't have blood in our trauma bay, it's, it's, it has to be fetched, um, uh, was walking down the hallway, waiting for the elevator, going up an elevator, walking down another hall, coming back, waiting for an elevator, going back down the elevator, walking back. That's not that person's fault. They just didn't understand one, you know, that, you know, every minute of delay to getting blood to the bedside incurs uh, some increased degree of mortality. 
Uh, and two, that if they went up the stairs, it'd be a whole lot faster. So we would be totally blind to that idea if we didn't try and sort of look at it and examine it first. Um, and then once you have a sense of what the issues are and what the problems are, then you move on to sort of ideating and prototyping. You're still not solving a problem yet. You're coming up with solutions and proposals and prototypes and testing them to see if you actually get the result um, that you think you're going to get. So again, still a, a long way away from actually uh, resolving the issue. Um, you know, it's one of our greatest strengths in healthcare and one of our greatest weaknesses. And I think surgeons and emergency physicians are kind of similar in this, that we're very problem focused. We see a problem, we want to fix it. Um, we skip a lot of steps, steps in between. Uh, Andrew and I would say, you know, the warm up to solving a problem is probably more important than solving the problem itself in terms of process. So we're still at the notion of sort of ideating, prototyping, testing solutions, trying to figure out what's going to work. And again, you know, Andrew and I being simulation people will both say that a simulation informed design process is a very powerful and useful way to do that for two reasons. One, um, you can, uh, obviously if you run a simulation, you have the opportunity to speak to and discuss and debrief with participants afterwards to really get into their heads and the simulation side of things helps you harness their sense of engagement and participation. And specifically we're talking here about insight you situation, which is sorry, insight you simulation where you're putting them within their work environment and doing their actual work, not just sort of what they think their work is, but actually doing it. So you can speak to them and discuss and debrief. Um, but you also have the opportunity to, to watch video and data from um, afterwards, things that people would never notice on their own. You have the you have the opportunity to look at and observe uh, and show them and reflect upon. It's like watching, you know, um, you know, an athlete watching the tape from their performance. They're like, "Holy crap! I didn't even know I was doing that when I went to the boards." Um, so you get those very sort of two very powerful data streams. You put them together, and now you really have a sense of okay, we had three ideas for fixing this problem. Only one of them actually seems to work, and is time efficient and cost efficient and cost effective. Now let's move ahead towards sort of stage three along design thinking, with which is sort of implementing and observing and the sort of CQI process that moves forward from there. You're not done yet. You have to implement it and get people on board and make it work and develop a system uh, that sort of allows you to implement a given solution, and then you have to monitor it in an ongoing fashion to make sure that it actually works. So. I think we do a fair bit of that last thing, which is implementing stuff, um, but we don't do a lot of, of the sort of prototyping, ideating, empathizing, uh, and and sort of process development before we actually get into the implementation stage. I would just um, want to focus in on one of the things that Chris said, which is so important, is this idea of like the multi-pronged or multi-faceted approach to understanding a problem. And we, we studied this um, when we were looking at how people work in our trauma bay. It is insufficient for, uh, yeah, if you really want to understand a problem, it is insufficient to ask people what the problem is. So it is a good idea during, as Chris described in a debriefing to ask them what their perspectives are. And so should, we should never divorce that from the process. But there are many things where the end user is blind to or ignorant to because they're so engaged in the process. Uh, for instance, when we uh, back to the, the monitor um, example that I gave earlier, the idea that you have monitors uh, at the head of the bed and the airway team then sort of is, is physically blinded from the monitor. Um, when you ask people, did you notice the oxygen desaturations? They say yes, because at some point they did notice it. But the monitor was, it, it had already happened that it had been, you know, an hour, a minute or two delay. And so it, it's, you may not, you may solve a problem lateral to the actual problem uh, if you don't fully understand it. So when we asked people in debriefings, 
uh, tell us about the encumbrances you have in your in your space. They would say things. People talk about people. It, it was it was like we we published on this. We've we've documented it. People will talk about interpersonal conflicts, how the communication went. They that's what that's what people recognize. We are not accustomed in healthcare to think and reflect on how we interact with physical spaces, processes, and systems. And so when we debriefed people in, in the, in the, after running inside you simulations, we said, okay, tell us, you know, what, what latent safety threats were there? What, what did, what prevented you from doing your care? It was all about, well, I had a bit of an interpersonal conflict with, you know, my colleague here and, but we resolved it and all that. Whereas very little, very rarely would people talk about equipment issues. No one ever mentioned the four cords they tripped over, uh, the equipment they lost or couldn't find. So it's a remarkable display uh, and, and predictable behavior in, in healthcare, probably in, in other places in the world, um, in other domains. But uh, we cannot exclusively rely on asking people. We need to ask people what they experienced that needs to be coupled with direct observation that needs to be coupled with, you know, other advanced metrics, uh, some data on how they move, where they go, where they're looking uh, to really understand. And then you can start to, as Chris mentioned, ideate and prototype these through, through, um, through some simulation. Well, that's such an important point. And, and you guys have thought about this clearly so, so deeply and there's so much we, we can learn from you. You know, one of the anecdotal interesting experiences here again at the foothills, take it back to the, the Raptor hybrid OR was that we had the benefit of a shelled out space. So our engineers had built plywood mock-ups and to your guys' points, we, you know, we ran multiple simulations of multiple different injured patients. And it was absolutely incredibly important not only to to debrief with those uh, personal opinions but as you point out you know we had fixed cameras in all locations looking at you know pinch points and and physical flow and and how that would all optimize care i guess what i'm getting in it getting at is tell us what your thoughts are in terms of maintenance of of these sort of environments because our experience here would have been Again, all this front-end work went in. It worked very well for a while. And then we sort of saw creep over time of some of the same issues, um, less so about the physical plant or, the, or the, the physicality of it because the room had been designed so well, but more uh, sort of other issues. And, and you guys have touched on a lot of the you know, potential categories of those issues, but I'm curious what, what your thoughts are in terms of you know, all this work goes into optimizing a space and, and all the human factors work. And then you're two or four or 10 years down the road in that same space um, uh, with, with speed bumps along the way. Yeah, I mean, and two things. One, I wonder, my first thought, and I've, I, we've encountered this with our work, you, you, even with all of the, the, the process that, that Andrew and I just described, you, go, you do through all this work, you think you're getting things right, you implement a solution with you know, a di- design thinking and user-centered lens, and it works great for a period of time, and then it doesn't. That actually right. makes me wonder if we got the right solution in the first place. Uh, because what we should be doing is making the preferred behavior the easiest thing to do. And if you mm-hmm. watch people slipping away from the preferred behavior, it's easy to blame the people. It's easy to say, well, why aren't you just using the space and the equipment the way we designed it for you? Um, but every time I catch myself saying that, I think, well, but maybe we just didn't get it right, and we have to revisit it. So my first thought is, you know, when you start to slide back. 
have you really made the preferred behavior the easiest thing to do? Or did you create something with a lot of effort that looked good for a period of time, but over time just decays and doesn't work? Uh, there certainly is a role for periodic, you know, refresher training and revisiting and, and medicine changes and surgery, surgery changes and equipment changes. And you have to update all of that over time. So that's part of it. Um, but uh, I, I find you sort of with our, and you mentioned the recess tower, it's a good example of that. Um, we, one of the, once you create this, you know, very uh, pretty looking and functional um, tool to facilitate resuscitation logistics, after you rip it apart in a resuscitation for two hours, somebody has to put it all back together again and restock it. And where we fall down all, often in the emergency department in general is, is with our restocking process. And this has been, this is an issue as old as, as time, um, you know, getting equipment restocked. We realized in that particular scenario, we had to go outside of our standard restocking system and create a restocking system um, that kind of worked on the fly that was done by a clinical person because it is kind of a clinical tool to put it back together as opposed to somebody, you know, from, from central stores. Um, and then because our tower is color coded and bundled and, um, that we, we set up our sort of a whole sort of other restocking area and restocking process that mirrored that same color coded system. So it was, you know, comparatively easy to put back together. Um, versus what you might find elsewhere in the department, but it still takes a lot of time and the process right now is still hinged on uh, for, for right now a nurse. Uh, so after resuscitation, you know, a nurse comes out of circulation to put the tower back together and it really does. If you really pull it apart and use everything in, in a recess for a couple of hours, you're talking about a good 30 minutes of, of restocking. So it's not it's not a small thing to take somebody out of circulation. So I look at that and I say we kind of fell down on the second part of the process, which is it's probably um, you know, if you think about that nurse that has to restock that tower, that nurse is busy. That nurse wants to get back to clinical care. Um, uh, they don't want to spend a ton of time, you know, restocking a, a bit of clinical equipment when they have patients to look after. And so they're going to, again, from a human centered design process, they're going to take shortcuts. They may skip certain things. They may get 90% of the way there and then say, oh, screw it. You know, this is good enough. Let's just put it back in circulation. I have patients to see. That's totally understandable. And, and the wrong approach to that would be to say, no, you have to you know, stock this thing properly. The right approach would be to say, well, what else can we do to make that process easier? Um, and so using that as an example, you know, we are looking at getting our, our equipment bundles put together in central stores so that rather than having to put it all back together, you just have to grab a bundle off of a shelf and put it back in the tower. That's one potential solution. Um, and another one is just not having a nurse do it at all, but to have one of our CAs uh, our clinical assistants uh, do it. So you're not taking a nurse out of circulation. So all that to say, you know, um, if you're, you know, as happy as we were and as proud as we were, frankly, of, of putting something like the recess towers together and all of the process work and simulation form design that went into it, I don't know that the end process was really right when we watched it sort of play out in real time. Um, and so rather than saying to people, as we often do in medicine, you have to do this thing because we want you to do it. Uh, I think sometimes it requires uh, some sort of critical reflection and saying, well, you know, getting over our hubris a little bit and saying, well, we, do we really get it right? Or do we have to go back and re-examine the problem and find out something else that works? I think on that note, Chris, because I think that's like a, yeah, one of the probably the key things about this is that we should never expect a design process to be static or finite in that it should always be dynamic and probably iterative. Um, just as much as we have multiple prototypes until we get to the quote end product, it we, we will learn over time that people will um, evolve and change in behavior. You know, if you look at- the Reason we're on uh, the I, iPhone 12, right? And not just right, the iPhone one right now. Exactly. Uh, you know, or you look at, um, yeah, I think, uh, well, this happens to me all the time, which is maybe a, a, uh, speaks to my uh, addiction to Twitter. 
on Twitter now, it if you scroll long enough, it says that's the end. Like it, it tells you that you've read as much as there is. They've built this in because, you know, they had a wonderful product. Uh, all of this information could just be, you know, forever. You could be on that, that, that device. Uh, and yet um, they've realized, well, maybe that's actually not that good of a thing. And so we have to now design a stop point to kind of nudge people to leave that page or whatever it might be. So um, I think uh, even good designs uh, might have unintended consequences. And uh, Chris has outlined them in, you know, using a, the recess tower example. Uh, but we should never imagine that that this is a, a finite process, but rather it is dynamic and continues to evolve as as much and as complex as the teams are that are using it. Yeah, there's a real humility to this whole work that, you know, you don't decide how people should do things, but you you look the other way and see how people are actually using it. I'm glad I'm not the only person who has scrolled to the very bottom of their, their Twitter feed and had to be reminded, hey, maybe you should be doing something else. You've gotten through the entire the entire timeline on your Twitter. So I'm, I'm very happy that I'm in good company. So, you know, we've been dancing around the all the work that you ha both have done to redesign uh, St. Mike's Trauma Bay. You know, and uh, one of the reasons I reached out to both of you was, you know, we saw the pictures of the new St. Mike's uh, resuscitation bay. And I had actually come to St. Mike's a few years ago for my for my colorectal surgery elective, actually, and um, had done some call and seen what the trauma bay was like beforehand. And it just looked radically different and is beautiful. Um, so I could I was hoping maybe, Andrew, you could start us off. Can you walk us through sort of what were the things that you noticed uh, in particular about the St. Mike's trauma bay and some of the big things that you uh, worked on and and uh, and improved? Like you talked about um, the recess carts, the um, um, and some of the other things like the circle on the floor. What were the other things that that you noticed about the trauma bay uh, that you worked on and improved? Yeah, so the biggest one was understanding the physical, the size of the physical space. The actual original design uh, called for three trauma, tra three beds, and that built that was built out of some uh, calculations that we would have an increase of you know we'll call it fifty percent of trauma patients over the next, whatever, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And so naturally, if you have two beds and you want to, and you're expecting an increase of 50%, you would go to three beds. Uh, that makes sense. Though most of us and all of us here understand that it's not like you fill those beds every minute of the day for 24 hours, you know, 365. It's that over the period of 24 hours, you'll have, instead of five patients, you might have seven or eight. Um, so what what we realized was when we studied in our existing space we understood sort of the circumference of care required for um, a trauma patient uh you know where are the clinicians moving around in the old trauma bay and we understood you know i can't remember what the dimensions were but it's something like eight feet from the sort of the center of the patient well when you put that in when you laid out three stretchers in the old in the in the new trauma bay you would have overlap and you would actually be creating encumbrances and creating probably um, people being upset that they're running into the stretcher adjacent for no good reason. Uh, and so as a result, we, we um, brought this to the architects and, and to their credit, uh, they redesigned us a space where we now are still at two beds. I mean, I'd love for three or four or 10 bed, but it, only if it could accommodate that. Um, 
So we, we were able to reconfigure the booms. This saved money. Uh, we, this saved um, time. Uh, this saved uh, retrofit costs. This saved uh, frustration among clinicians. Uh, so that was probably one of the biggest things is just understanding the space um, accurately and, and then being able to design it appropriately so that it fit our needs and not um, and still allowing us to do the job that we need to do and, 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 uh, uh, and, and getting care delivered in a timely fashion. Um, other things that we did, we, we went through a list of processes that um, occur regularly or procedures or, or things that happen. And so Chris can probably talk about some of the cart development because he did a lot of that, but we built a, what we call a high frequency cabinet. So rather than scattering equipment all around the room, there are things like, you know, we often staple or suture um, fairly quickly. We'll need saline for irrigation. We'll need um, pelvic binder. We'll need um, sterile gloves, whatever, all of that kind of stuff. Yet we don't typically need a Thomas splint for reducing a femur fracture or something. We need that, but we don't need it urgently and we don't need it frequently. And so we reprioritized and reorganized that space so that the clinicians could find stuff um, and, and we stratified it in a way of, of, of frequency. And so we have a cabinet that has um, high, it's what we call a high frequency cabinet that, that has um, all of that equipment that we need regularly. It's all labeled in a way that makes sense. So you can find it from anywhere in the room. Uh, what else did we do? We did, uh, I, I mentioned the um, monitors. So we observed that people were sort of, um, there was, uh, you know, a functional blindness that was happening with the vital sign monitors. So as a result, we put monitors at the foot of the bed as well, so that the airway team could visualize the monitors. Uh, we put monitors at the side of the bed. So we have 270 degrees of monitors so that pretty much anybody taking care of that patient has a easy uh, sight line to the monitors. And to, to give you a sense of how, how it played out, this all started in our old trauma bay. So the, we, we started by running in situ simulations in our old trauma bay. We created what we called living M&M cases, which is, uh, you know, our, we mined our, our hospital's true M&M uh, database for, un, for unanticipated trauma deaths. We organized those into themes, and then we created simulation cases based on them when we ran them in our, in our old trauma bay. And what came out of that, again, this is on that sort of empathize and ideate stage of design thinking, is we're able to get a list of themes and general issues like when somebody says we're going to perform a surgical airway that might mean a percutaneous airway to the anesthesiologist it might mean a bougie crike to the emergency physician it might mean a tracheostomy to the trauma surgeon nobody's thinking the same thing and there were three different kinds of equipment organized haphazardly around the, the the trauma bay and so there was a lot of confusion around that um, issues around uh, time of blood product delivery issues around space around the head neck and torso um, uh, challenges around clinical logistics and patient and patient and provider safety you know, again, all of that work went into understanding what the natures of the nature of the problems were before we then went ahead and started to create and, and ideate and develop solutions. Um, and so uh, Andrew mentioned some of the, the work around uh, sort of space and, and, and um, protecting sort of the real estate around the head and neck, vital signs monitors. Um, the, the, I think he's kind of underselling the importance of the work he did around um, uh, rethinking clinical equipment. Um, I think our, our take would be that every bit of equipment in our old trauma bay had, if you were to give it a weighted priority, had the same weighted priority, whether it was a Foley catheter um, or a percutaneous airway kit. It was all kind of weighted the same in terms of your ability to find it and use it, which, which makes no sense at all. 
So we recategorized, we said, well, really there's three kinds of equipment in trauma resuscitation. There is bedside critical care equipment, things that you need to be able to bring to the bedside um, to do something like um, a finger thoracostomy and chest tube, a thoracotomy, whatever it happens to be. Then there's stuff that you use often. Uh, and then there's everything else. Okay, now that we understand that, let's start to design solutions that actually work to execute that design concept. And so the bedside critical care stuff was the, the carts that Andrew refers to, you know, carts with giant words on the side that say chest tube or vascular access and arterial monitoring, you know, stuff to facilitate Reboa if you, if you leave in that sort of thing, I won't go there today. Um, but the idea is you, you have a cart that has a purpose and it's easy to find and it tucks under a cabinet. Uh, and from anywhere in the room, you can look around and see these giant letters that say chest tube on it and you know what uh, it's meant to be used for. That can wheel to the bedside. It has a stainless steel large work surface on it. So you're not putting equipment, you know, on the patient's pelvis somewhere in the world right now. Uh, somebody has a central line kit on somebody's pelvis about ready to get kicked onto the floor. Uh, we did that because we had to, or because the alternate is a Mayo stand, which as far as I can tell was designed to fall over. So now we have this thing that actually facilitates the work that you have to do at the bedside and it's easy to use and it's intuitive and has everything you need and that's it. Uh, and then, and that's true for central line access and femoral artery access. And, uh, we've restocked and reorganized our airway carts so that they're process based. Uh, if you look at our airway carts, they say plan A, plan B, plan C. Um, and by the way, that's a, a deal we totally stole from Mike Betzner, who's, uh, who's one of your best and brightest. Um, uh, we took that from the dam cart design that they've used out there and a great name for an airway cart, I have to add. Uh, but again, it's process-based. We understand that, you know, if you open up plan A, then there is a plan in place and we can actually train our teams and design our equipment and our clinical logistics to reflect what plan A is. We don't have to wonder in advance, um, uh, and create ad hoc what our first airway plan is going to be. It's relatively standardized. But the point is all of that is bedside critical care. And now we get it and we can design a solution to work for it. And then as Andrew mentioned, then there's stuff that we need often, but we don't need it at the bedside. And that's where the frequency use card is. And again, it's colorful and it's labeled and it's relatively easy to identify. So if you have you know, sort of a patient with external hemorrhage, you open up one particular um, sort of shelf in the cart and you have everything you need for external hemorrhage control. And then there's everything else and everything else can go away. It can go in a, in a, a sterile storage room. It doesn't have to be at the bedside. Um, and as Andrew said, you know, casting and splinting with apologies to orthopedics, often they're not emergent. And so you can take a minute to go and find that stuff. Um, so everything is not weighted equally. Everything it's not, doesn't have a weight of one. We've weighted certain things heavier than others. Uh, and then we turned around and created design solutions that actually facilitate the clinical logistics to get that critical care to the bedside. Well, this has been an absolutely fantastic discussion with both of you. I've really enjoyed it. And um, so many of the concepts that you're talking about are so important. And yet, surprisingly so foreign to, to most of us, as you both alluded to, you know, this whole concept of design thinking, putting the end user in mind, you know, it's very different often, I find, than the way we traditionally do research uh, in healthcare, where we, you know, we do this big literature review, and we look at every single research report that was ever written about the topic, and then make some tiny little incremental change, which really doesn't solve the problem often. Uh, because often we don't even know what the problem is. So thank you again both for joining us. I wanted to just end by asking both of you what you think the future of human factor design is, particularly in the emergency department, but perhaps even more broadly in the hospital. And uh, maybe we'll start with you, Andrew, again. What do you think are the big challenges going forward? You know, we talked about the fact that design is not a static process, that it's a dynamic thing. And and obviously your your context might be different than than other things uh, and other places. But what do you think are the big challenges, big things that you, you both are working on going forward that uh, that 
that need to be solved uh, for the 21st century and beyond? I think, uh, you know, the idea that when we say human-centered design in healthcare, uh, that the patient becomes involved in that design process. And I, I, I would be shocked if there's, you know, many places in the world that are designing with, um, with the patient, not in mind, but involved. Um, I just don't think that it's happening. I mean, I, we see this because people get frustrated in their receiving clinical care. So, so clearly that we have dismissed their opinions. And so we, we try and, and um, imagine, uh, you know, as clinicians or as, as designers, as architects, uh, whatever that might be, whatever level you're at, you might uh, try to, to imagine what the, the patient would want. But until you're lying in pain in a trauma bay or being wheeled to the OR or uh, waiting for an outpatient clinic, uh, until you ex actually experience that, um, then, then it's very difficult to know what it is, what, what's actually needed, what's actually the problem. The other thing is, is this idea that we would um, ever open a new clinical space with a patient being the first test case of that space is, is a remarkable uh, failure uh, in healthcare. Um, the, the idea that we would ever get into a car that hasn't been crash tested, it's not even allowed. I mean, there's, there's regulations against that. And yet we have no regulation. Uh, that that simulation isn't absolutely required at the most or the bare minimum just to test prior to opening. I, I mean, Chris and I obviously advocate for simulation and and Dr. Ball mentioned that the way what they've been doing in, in Calgary with the design of the Raptor Suite that it starts very early on and you de you develop mockups and prototypes and all of that. But but at the bare minimum, uh, that even just before it opens, that it be tested so that at least you expose any of the, the design deficiencies. And then, you know, the, the usual workarounds that we're so good at in healthcare can be implemented. But um, yeah, I think those are sort of the two main areas that I, I see as, I guess, challenges and opportunities that, that patients be involved in the design process. And I, I would say, I guess, the same clinicians, you know, if you ask um, and you follow the process. The current process is, you know, a handful of end user meetings, and then 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 plans get drawn, and and that's the, sort of the end of the story. And and then before you know it, the shovel's on the ground, which is, um, I think, we spend a lot of time in the solution space and not enough time in the problem space. And so, if we can fix that asymmetry, that I think then we'll be in a better spot, and our patients will be getting better care. Yeah, I mean, Andrew and I think a lot alike on this, so no surprise we'd, we'd give the same answer. I mean, the idea that we are developing and opening and creating clinical spaces and systems without sort of crash testing them first or or worse still, putting real patients in the front seat and then crashing the car, I mean, that concept just seems completely bonkers to me. And I think a healthcare in general has a lot to answer for with this concept of learned helplessness that we've all become, become accustomed to. We can't see it because we've been told uh, that this is the way it is, that we have to accept that work is the way it is, that medicine is hard, that it's supposed to be difficult. Um, and even worse than that, we're often commended on our bravery and our resilience in working against stupid systems that weren't designed to work for us. So I think there's a lot to undo there uh, where health in general, health systems in general have been created on the backs of the effort and the resiliency and the ingenuity and the creativity of the people working within it who constantly have to get over and problem solve around a system that doesn't work for them. 
that's not how it's supposed to be designed. You're supposed to design a system to make it easier to take advantage of the expertise of the people within the system so they can look after a patient. We say that, but we don't actually do it. And I think the big challenge, one of the big challenges to overcome, in addition to what Andrew said, is the idea that it requires an upfront investment. Uh, we, we've had uh, countless conversations with people that are interested in this work and they want to find out a little bit more. And then we explain it to them and we say, yeah, you have to do a lot of upfront simulation and testing and design and piloting and revi revising. And it takes time. Uh, it takes effort, frankly, it takes money, but that upfront investment gets you a much better, safer, robust end result. Some people get it other people say, well, that sounds a lot more complicated than having a couple of meetings. So uh, we don't want to do that. Um, so, you know, it's the classic challenge of preventative health or public health, you know, the idea that you can prevent something by making an upfront investment and preventing a downstream catastrophe, you know, people's minds don't always think that way. They see the problem in front of them and not the opportunity to, pro to prevent the problem that's 10 steps away. And so I think Andrew and I have a lot of work to do and the system as a whole has a lot of work to do in trying to get people to see that if you, you know, you know, an ounce of prevention is, is worth a, 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 a pound of, of cure, right? But we, we really have to help people refocus on one, things don't have to be as screwed up as they are. We've just accepted that they are. And two, that it requires work and time and effort uh, up front to make sure that you actually get the safe systems that you want to get as an end product. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. This podcast was edited and produced by Tyler Daniels. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.